Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I am woman, hear me roar, in numbers too big to ignore, and I know too much to go back and pretend. Because I've heard it all before and I've been down there on the floor. No one's ever going to keep me down again. I am strong. I am invincible. I am woman. That song from Helen Reddy came out in 1971. I was 14 years old. And Brian, that was the beginning of my burgeoning feminism. That's exciting. I was negative 10 when it came out. Wait, really? It was a really meaningful moment to me when it did. (laughs) This was 10 years before you were born? It was. I'm sorry to report. I'm going to reach across this desk and slap you. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, that's equal rights, isn't it? Yeah, right. But, you know, I think that that song was so important to me in my formative years, that and the Mary Tyler Moore show, because let's face it, Brian, she could take a nothing day and suddenly make it all seem worthwhile. Why are we talking about all of this? Well, at the convention in Philadelphia, we saw the first female nominee for president of the United States in history. And no matter what your politics are, that's a pretty big deal. So we wanted to get a take on what this means, how people feel about it. We went out to Times Square to talk to women and men, boys and girls, about the prospect of the first female president. The first female president. Do you want to talk to me? Hi. So, And hi. here's some of the things they had to say. Where are you from? New York. New- I was born in Harlem. Oh, you were. Well, how do you feel about potentially having a female president? It's everything. It's everything that we need. Does it mean anything to you? That- um, I mean, it's kind of surprising. Why? Because, like, if it's, like, the first girl, I mean, it's always a new thing, so. How old are you? 14. You're 14 (laughs) years old. Okay. So how do you think you'll feel if, in fact, Hillary Clinton's elected and you watch her being inaugurated? 
proud. Kind of like we could all do it too. Like maybe one day I could be president. Um, I think it's more significant of the person and the character rather than the person's gender. Um, when I look at voting for somebody, I'm not looking at sex, race, religion, anything. I'm looking at what they stand for and what they're doing. And so how do you feel about, are you, do you, can you tell me who you're voting for? Um, I'm leaning much more towards Trump than, uh, than through for Hillary. How do you feel about it? Honestly, I don't really, it doesn't matter. I think it's a good opportunity. Personally, I feel like having a female president will probably change the standards of, you know, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of unequal in a world of men and women. We get paid less, men get paid more. So if Hillary does become president, maybe those rules will change where everyone is kind of equal. As You're long as she's a good president, then it would be great. So her ability matters more to you than her gender. Mm, half and half. We're excited to have the fictional feminist heroine, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, a.k.a. Or anti-heroine, <laughs> Selena Meyer, who is currently running the country, at least on HBO. Like so many Americans, I have a massive girl crush on Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I first met her as Elaine on Seinfeld, and I did a story on the final episode of Seinfeld, so I went to the set. We had so much fun, and in fact, she taught me some of her moves on the dance floor, which is my favorite Seinfeld episode. That explains so much about you on the dance floor. Hey, wait a second. I'm a really good dancer. I have to work hard to look like a bad dancer, uh -huh. actually, Brian. Come on. <laughs> yeah. But we, I just, I don't know, we just hit it off. And of course, I'm so thrilled for her success on V, because I think the show is brilliant, and she is brilliant in it. And she was nice enough to let us give her a call at her house in L.A. Hi, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Hi, Katie Kirk. It's very exciting to have you join our podcast. And you, it's, By the way, it's because we're in my house, it's possible things are going to happen while we're talking. That's okay. Like, my teenager is still asleep upstairs, and so he may come down and ask for breakfast. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this is a good time to teach him how to boil an egg. Exactly. This is Brian Goldsmith, who's a huge fan of yours. I am, and a huge fan of the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So welcome to our little podcast. Well, thanks for having me on your little podcast. Do you listen to podcasts? I do, yeah. I I, I think they're um, amazing, actually, and I listen to them when I have a long drive or on a plane. Which are your favorite podcasts? <clears throat> well, I'm a big Ira Glass, uh, This American Life fan. That's sort of what I usually go to. And then the, like the moth series and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm. Well, there's so many, I don't know, you know, there's so much material out there that's actually really worthy. I don't know how people ingest all the incoming good quality well, stuff, right? No kidding. I mean, between podcasts and all the good television that's out there on on cable I, I don't know I guess we should never get out of bed I think you're right <laughs> that's how I feel sometimes honestly but talking about good television we have to talk about veep I mean listen it is so hilarious Julia and I know the creator left and you were very insistent that you wanted to keep the show going I feel like yes. it's better than ever Thanks. That's so nice of you to say. And apparently you're extremely involved in every bit of it. The writing and when you shoot a scene, you say, why don't we do it this way or that way? In other words, you're a control freak in the best possible way. Yes. But I think that's why you and I like each other. <laughs> yeah, 
I think you're right. But I mean, obviously, I think you're having still having a fantastic time. And the C word, I think, was one of my favorite episodes ever. Oh, really? Oh, you know what? My husband directed that episode. I know he did, which made me like it even more. <laughs> Isn't that funny that that's the episode he directed? Well, I think everybody was talking about it, and people just loved it so much. And when you look ahead, I mean, have have you started shooting for next season? Uh, we have started writing for next season, but not shooting yet. And so where do you, you know, how do you figure out where you're going to take the show? Because I think a lot of people worried when she became president, it was going to lose its edge because so much of the comedy was based on her being a second banana. And yet it got funnier and funnier. And and have can you give us, without spo- a spoiler alert, any indication of how the show is going to move forward? Well, yeah, I can in in broad terms. I mean, I can say that Selena Meyer is a political animal. I mean, fundamentally in her core. And so that's not going anywhere. And um and she was president for a very short period of time and you can even make the argument that she wasn't even quite elected, you know. And so um it's very important to her a top priority for her is to remain relevant. Relevancy is the name of the game. So, um, you know, you, you haven't seen the last of her. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and, and I think that's, you know, this woman is always trying to get uphill and, uh, and that will remain in place. Because even when she was president, she was campaigning to try to stay president. And in fact, campaigning to get elected president because she wasn't, she sort of fell into it uh, the first go round. You know, it's remarkable to me how many people I know in politics who say that Veep is actually the most accurate depiction of what real life in elected office is actually like. Not House of Cards, not the West Wing, but Veep. Does that thrill you or scare you or some combination of the two? I guess it's a sort of a cocktail of the two, (laughs) but more thrill me than anything else because I feel as if we've worked very hard. I mean, we've worked really hard to keep to, to make the show funny, first and foremost, but We've also worked really hard to keep it plausible. So, so much of the behavior and storylines goes through sort of a a sieve in which we say, okay, is this plausible? Would this happen? Can this happen? Is this too broad? Uh, Is it just the right of small? Um, You know, and so I'm, I'm thrilled at that. And I do believe, you know, I know it may seem as if I'm very cynical about politics and so on. It actually has, in a weird way, kind of um, made me have even more respect for those people in politics who I think have remained true to their core and who have an sort of an an elevated sense of, of and correctly so, of, of doing the right thing and, and, and sort of following an, an idea as opposed to just... Um, a single person or an ego. And, and, and those people exist. And so, um, and I've had the good fortune to run into them. And of course, there are plenty of people in politics who, who don't uh, fall into that category, but I think there are plenty who do. So I'm not, I'm not undone by the, the reality of the show. You have real political or former political pros who contribute to the show. You have also great journalists like Frank Rich, who, you know, had a great proximity to power and wrote about it through the years. Um, I can't help but wonder how 
the juxtaposition of the Trump campaign and the craziest campaign season, I think, that you and I and most people can remember, how that is kind of playing out in terms of how Veep is developing as well. Can you talk about that a little bit, Julia? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something. What's going on in the Trump campaign, I am telling you, if you were to take the actual, his language, his, his, the sentences that he speaks and put them down on paper or the certain reality, the realities that occurred at the Republican convention, i.e. Melania Trump plagiarizing the speech, um, either wittingly or unwittingly, whatever, but it's a fact, uh, it's too broad for our show. Yeah, real life is crazier than Veep. It's too big. <laughs> I'm telling you, if they had said that, I would have said, "No, guys, we're not going to do this. is uh, This is a uh, this is broad. This is like a cartoon." When you come up with stuff like that slogan, "Continuity with Change," which is sort of a parody of a political consult of a slogan, and yeah. it turns out the Prime Minister of Australia basically copied it. His was continuity and change. Yeah, so he he changed the. Uh, what is that, conjunction or whatever? And then he got a lot of shit for it. And then I guess he made it, he made, he changed it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, isn't that remarkable? That's one of my favorite um, moments. Julia, I mean, what do you think of this whole Trump campaign when you see it just as an American citizen? And who on the show is most like Donald Trump, you think? Um, on the show, I guess the person who's the most like Donald Trump on our show is Jonah Ryan only because, uh, played by the wonderful Tim Simons, uh, only because he's completely uh, um, ill-suited for the job of congressman and, um, and unfit is the, the, the word of choice these days, and, and uh, potentially mentally unstable all in one. So I would say that Jonah Ryan is as close as we can get to Trump, but he certainly wasn't fashioned after Trump. Are you being inspired by some of the things you're watching on the campaign trail? And I don't mean inspired as a person. I mean inspired as a writer and someone in the field of comedy. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the show obviously isn't a parody. And we've created this alternate universe on our show so that parties aren't aren't defined. Uh, and that's really been an advantage, particularly nowadays when everything is so uh, seemingly polarized um, I think it, it's, it gives us the opportunity to have sort of everybody can join in on the fun. I mean, the truth is, is that when we meet with insiders uh, and politicians and so on in D.C., no matter what side of the aisle they're on, they think we're making fun of the other side. <laughs> That's convenient. And, yeah, it's very convenient. So, um, I mean, yeah, sure, we're, we're all uh, – keenly involved and watching, of course, as all, I would think, I would hope uh, most American citizens are, but also as comedy writers and as, and given the fact that the show's political, but our goal is not to sort of scoop that stuff up and, and, and we never have sort of put it directly into a show. Um, Although it seems to, things seem to sort of parallel a lot in a weird way, almost by coincidence, as in the continuity uh, continuity with change slogan. Let's talk about your sort of political leanings. I know you ha- you're you supporting Hillary Clinton. Yes. Um, and I'm curious about how you feel she's being portrayed out there 
in the world and if you feel that she's being portrayed fairly because there is, you know, I'm sure you've talked a lot about sexism, both professionally, politically, et cetera. And do you think that's entering into the conversation, even in a subtle way? I, I think it's in the conversation and we don't even know it. For instance, we're talking about it right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, we wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't an issue. Um there is, there's no avoiding it. You know, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary achievement that she's the first female candidate for, for president, nominated candidate, I should say. And, and at the same time, she is being seen through a lens as such. Um, and, uh, you know, people talk about those pantsuits and people talk about, uh, well, look, let's put it this way. A man who is, I've said this before, but a man who is uh, decisive and stern uh, is, I would say, garners a certain amount of respect, but I can't say that's the same necessarily for a woman. And I really think that's all you need to know. <laughs> and you play the first female president on your show. Yeah. Um, how do you think about portraying that character? Are you trying to send a message in any way about... No, I'm trying to be funny, period. I'm not on a soapbox on this show. Having said that, though, we're making fun of this reality. I mean, there has been more than more than one occasion in which uh, Selena Meyer has said things like, uh, I don't want to identify myself as a woman because people don't like women. <laughs> and as a woman, you know that and I know that we don't like women. So, I mean, and I'm I'm completely botching what the line was, but we've said... A, a variation on that line multiple times throughout the seasons. Yeah, and the word lady balls is used many times on the show. Yeah, lady balls for sure. <laughs> I was asking Brian about, gee, does the show really kind of take on sexism uh, in, in, a, in, a, in, a real, in a significant way? And we were scratching our heads and saying, not so much. It seems to be somewhat gender neutral in terms of the comedy that's part and parcel of the show. Would you agree with well, that? Except for yeah, those I some exceptions. I mean, I think we do take it on, but I think we take it on. It's it's um, it's between the lines, um, and I think the very concept of the show takes it on. Now we should say there are a lot of female conservatives who are not supporting Hillary, having nothing to do with sexism, but because they fundamentally disagree with her. Oh, listen, I'm not even suggesting that people aren't supporting her only because she's a woman for those who aren't supporting her. I'm, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that people, um, it's a different kind of judgment, period. That's what I think. Right. In fact, she said as much, talked about sort of Hillary standards, right? And thinks she's been very open about that. And and do you feel like that exists, obviously, for women in Hollywood still? There's been so much discussion in recent years about the dearth of, of great roles. You did a very funny skit with Tina Fey and Patricia Arquette, and Amy Schumer comes up as your last effable day. And and uh, I think that was also about ages. Are we not allowed to swear on your podcast? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you don't. you did say shit the other day, and that got a lot of attention on social media. It did. It did, did it really? Oh, oh yeah. So oh. if I, so if I correct you and say it's called the last fuckable day, maybe it'll get more you can attention swear on, on our social podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> anyway, 
What was the question? The question was about the no video, idea. the last. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I was just going to say, um, is it still very frustrating to be a woman in Hollywood? Sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I know. Is that a stupid question? I know that sounds stupid, but I feel like things are, are starting to change a little bit, or are they not? I don't know. It really depends. I mean, uh, no, no. I mean, I guess they are just because we're sort of talking about it. And 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 I think there's certainly been um, more movement in the world of television and cable, movement in the right direction for more gender equality and also diversification, I would say. But um, certainly not in film, I don't think. I don't think that's the case in film. And it's definitely harder to age in in show business as a woman than it is for a man but i would say that there's a there's plenty plenty room for improvement yeah how can we change that you know as somebody who's about to turn 60 uh that would be me not you i think about it will it ever change because it seems to me the preferred age of actors or newscasters even are is in their 30s and 40s Right. I, so how do you I, change that? Uh, by continuing to work and setting an example, you know, and uh, and having some lady balls because um, as much as, as, as you can or feels appropriate. I mean, I executive produce my show and I uh, call a lot of the shots and um, but that hasn't always been the case. And I'm glad it is now. And I try to hire as many capable women as as we can and and uh but it's not easy there there are, it i mean it it took a long time for me to get into this position and uh i've had to work hard to to get to this moment but maybe um, but i'm happy to be here i was going to say maybe because of you though it will be easier for the women who are coming after you and yeah i feel that way for you, me Katie. too yeah you know that I had to put up with so much BS when I anchored the CBS Evening News that I feel like the women behind me don't have to deal with quite as much. I mean, there's still a certain amount of it that they're going to have to tolerate, but it just sort of gets easier. The less novel it is, the easier it becomes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The less novel. And, uh, you know, assuming that Hillary gets elected, you know, think if you're a little kid right now. Think if you're 10 or 12 years old and and the first president in your memory is a, is a African American man and the next president is a, is a uh, a female I mean can, think how that changes your point of view on life generally um, I think it's enormous. Well, we should talk about for a second your own relationship with Hillary Clinton because she sent you a note in early 2013. Can you tell that story? I can. Well, um, it turns out that when we we uh, shot Veep in Baltimore, Maryland for the first four years, and um, someone uh, who was in our makeup department also did the makeup for Hillary Clinton. And this was back when she was Secretary of State. And so uh, for Christmas, uh, the uh, hair and makeup folks um, who are all good friends of mine, gave to me a buck slip that says Secretary of State on it, and it's from Hillary Clinton. And uh, hold on, I'm in my office. I'm going to get it. 
and it says, uh, Julia, you're a great veep. Hope you can get gun control, immigration reform, and job creation this season. All the best, Hillary Rodham Clinton. And this was in January of uh, 2013. So you can imagine how thrilled I was to get this. It was such, it's just amazing. And, and you thought, wow, framed. this show is really breaking through. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so I had it framed and loved it. And then uh, her emails came out. And uh, and a bunch of them, you know, were put out there for public record or whatever the word is. And somebody tweeted to me, did you see this? Which I had not because I'm really not interested in reading all of her emails. <laughs> and, uh, and the email is from Hillary to somebody who works for her saying, a friend wants me to sign something for Julia Lewis Dreyfus <laughs> for Veep. Any ideas? Lewis, by the way, is spelled... L-E-W-I-S. That's not how I spell my last name. So she's a huge fan. <laughs> and and her guy wrote back, let me brainstorm on this one, do some research. I confess I haven't seen the show. <laughs> so it was just perfect. And so I printed this up and then I reframed this so that the buck slip and the email are next to each other because it's it's just quintessentially, it's everything about this I love, to be honest with you. And it's, and, and it's nothing against Hillary at all, but it does speak to, frankly, what our show Veep is very much about. And uh, so it's, uh, but I was thrilled to be, I mean, to have this connection and then to have this buck slip from her is just crazy, isn't it? When you, it's so funny. When you say what our show is really about, what would you say your show is really about? It's obviously about... No, not about nothing. It's about, is it about sort of the difference between uh, appearances and what peop- what's really going on behind the scenes? Yeah, I guess it's about the real hu- human behavior in politics as opposed to the lofty idea of human behavior in politics. And uh, it's what's behind the curtain. Th- that's what it's about. Well, one one small thing that the show accomplishes is it is it exposes the culture of the body man in Washington, which I think a oh, lot yeah. of people not in politics didn't know about. Um, the mm. Gary character is kind of the body man to the to the tenth power. Um, can you sort of describe for people who haven't seen the show what that person does? Well, body man is a real position. It's a guy or a woman who travels to the president and sort of attends to the president every moment. So knows the president's schedule or vice president's schedule, knows where, uh, what they need, uh, when they want their snack, what, if they, if what kind of snack they would want. Uh, they have Kleenex, they have anything is in a bag that they carry with them. Throat lozenges. Purell. Throat lozenges, Purell, uh, Tampax, whatever you need, they've got it. (laughs) And it's in a bag, and it's a very, very, uh, I'm going to say, intimate position. <laughs> uh, Doug, Doug Band was a body man to Clinton for many years and rose, rose up to, to run the Clinton Foundation. At, at first glance, I guess you could say seemingly menial job, but in fact, it's, it's kind of just the opposite. And Tony Hale plays my body man on Veep. And um, 
we have so much fun together. You have no idea. He's a great. Katie, have you met him? I have. He is so funny. He's kind yeah. of, he is that guy. He is the great. And it's funny because we're very close. And in a strange way, uh, like when we're working together, he's sort of that same guy to me in a weird way. I mean, not that he follows me around with the bag, but there's, <laughs> there's the, Levi- there's the Leviathan, inti- we should we Exactly, should say. the Leviathan. But there's sort of an intimacy there that is comfortable. I don't know how else to say it. Well, you have such an incredible group of people on that show. I mean, every last one of them. It is such a true ensemble. And the people behind the scenes, as Katie mentioned earlier, are political pros who've, who've been in these positions. Do they kind of go through the script writing process with you and say, well, this could happen, this doesn't happen? My pal uh, Eric. Yes, we have, these, we have these political consultants who work on the show from both sides of the aisle, by the way, and uh, vet our scripts, So, um, which is fantastic. And they go through and, and say exactly that. This isn't plausible. You would need more Secret Service in this scene. Uh, there's no way this person would be allowed to enter the Oval, all that kind of stuff. And they've been there, they've lived and breathed it, so they know. And a lot, and most of the time, I would say, we we follow their advice. Sometimes we don't for the sake of comedy or, or telling of a story. But for the most part, we really do, because it's important to us to make the thing seem grounded, you know? I mean, but but with this election season, it seems like the sky is literally the limit. I mean, you have Scott Baio standing in front of, of a sign that says count at the Republican National Convention, and he's standing in front of the O. I mean, yeah. that would have been a perfect ending <laughs> for my favorite episode. Yes, it would have been an ideal ending, and we may have to revisit that moment. And then you have Donald Trump being handed a purple heart and saying, I've always wanted one of these, and this is a lot easier. I mean, can't you see a character in Veep well, doing that sounds something a lot like that? Like, to, to me, that sounds like Selena Meyer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Un- <laughs> who, by the way, is also unfit to be president. Um, but that would be something she might say. It's incredibly narcissistic and insensitive, and 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 there's a- there's zero understanding of the circumstances or the realities of a Purple Heart. But you know what else felt a lot like Selena Meyer when Hillary Clinton tried to get on the subway in New York City? Oh, that was a brilliant moment. Yeah. Trying to get that Metro card to work. Oh, it's just too fabulous. Exactly. Because for those of us who actually do take the subway, there's there's a particular rhythm with which you have to swipe. And for those people who don't take the subway, it's it's kind of hard to master on your first go. And, it was uh, kind of a modern moment, a modern replay of, of George Herbert Walker Bush at the grocery store scanner, right? Where he couldn't figure out sort of how much milk cost, right? He marveled at the, uh, at the <laughs> scanner and its ability to detect immediately what sort of food uh, was coming across the, uh, the table. Right. Well, I mean, these guys live in a bubble. Let's not, con- let's not kid ourselves. Do you think we expect too much of our leaders? We want them to be in touch and down to earth, and we also want them to make these big decisions about war and peace? Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I'm not sure down-to-earth matters. I think intelligence and wisdom is is really the, the name of the game, um, but I don't know how that sells. I was going to we'll say, in this, in this day and age, and then you watch what happened with Brexit, it seems like anti-intellectualism is so profoundly popular now. The guy who said, don't listen to experts, experts don't know anything. Um, it's yeah. been very, it's been fascinating and also... Uh, unsettling to watch 
people dismiss anybody with any level of expertise or experience. Why do you think that's happening? I don't know, but it's not a good sign. I mean, it's happened in other times in, in world history, and it's it's never a good thing. Uh, so um, st- striving for, uh, um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I'm kind of despondent about it, actually. <laughs> I, I think, uh, let me just put it this way. Let's get out the vote. We got to get out the vote. This is what this election's all about. Uh, if we can get out the vote, I think... Uh, uh, I think Hillary will win, and and I'm going to um, work really, really hard to to help get that in place. Well, maybe if she wins, she'll be a guest on on the next the next Veep. What do you think of that? No, that won't work. I love her to death, but she's not getting into Veep, and neither is Donald or any of these other people. We don't put any real life people in our shows. Uh, we we created this alternate universe uh, very, very specifically. Uh, and intentionally, so that um, so we don't have any of that. We don't even have real journalists or or anything on our show. We create. We've just completely made an, another world altogether, which I'm actually quite glad about. Otherwise, we'd we'd fall into fall into areas we wouldn't want to go to. I think comedically. Well, maybe Larry David could be a Bernie Sanders like character. <laughs> no. Katie, no. Okay. He's already done that. (laughs) That's true. And brilliantly, I might add, brilliantly. Obviously, I could never work for for a show like yours. I just don't have any new ideas. No, you're coming, you're you're pitching terrible ideas, but I'm my door is open. If you want to pitch me other ones, I'll listen. I I don't think I'm gonna give you the job. (laughs) Well, I'm glad at least you're honest. Well, thank you for talking with us. This was really it's always great to talk to you, and hopefully I'll see you soon. Oh, I hope so. And um, thanks for having me on your show. Good luck with it. I'm psyched that you got it. Thank and you. Nice to meet you too, Brian. Nice to meet you. Nice you're, to meet you. You're Thanks fucking very much. brilliant. Oh my God. We've created a monster. <laughs> a fucking monster. <laughs> bye. Hey, bye, you guys. Talk to you later. Okay, bye. bye. Brian, that was so fun. I don't know about you, but I just love her. You must have a crush on her now too, right? I've always had a crush on Julia Louis-Dreyfus. When I was getting ready to do this interview, by the way, I think I read that all the 25 and 26-year-old writers who were working on Seinfeld were in love with her, so you can understand why. Yeah, of course. But it's also great because I think that sometimes things happen on television and they get us ready for things happening in real life, whether we're talking about the Huxtables pre the Bill Cosby controversy PS or other shows, you know, I think you got to see it to be it. And so when you see it on television, it normalizes it. We're going to talk more about women in politics, but first we're going to take a quick break. But after that, we'll talk with a reporter who's gotten some of the closest access possible to Hillary Clinton, New York Magazine writer, Rebecca Traster. But first, a word from our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like 
meh. Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Thanks so much to our sponsors. Now, let's get back to the show. So we have Rebecca Traster coming up next, and she's covering the real-life version of the story on Veep of a woman running for president. And when you think about it, Selena Meyer is a little bit Hillary and a little Donald Trump. Yeah, she probably has the worst qualities of both of them. (laughs) How lovely and charming. But that's what makes the show so good because she's just on so many levels intensely unlikable. But the same cannot be said for Rebecca Traster. She (laughs) is so smart, so nice, and a great reporter for New York Magazine. She spent a lot of time on the campaign trail with Hillary Clinton, and she's written a couple of books about women in politics and women in society. And the latest is called All the Single Ladies, All the Single Ladies, but it's only just one All the Single Ladies. To be clear. Yes. I'm so happy to have you here. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Before we talk about the great work that you've done, um, tell me a little bit about yourself, because you are a generation younger than me, I Mm -hmm. hate to admit. What do you say "Mm -hmm," so quickly, Rebecca? (laughs) I hate that. (laughs) But you're 41. Tell me about how you came to be interested in women's issues and why you really wanted to focus on this in your writing and your journalism. Well, I never imagined that I would focus on it professionally because the era in which I came of age, if you came of age in the Helen Reddy era, I came of age in the deep frozen backlash tundra that followed, right? So I was born in 1975. Oh, you were like in Susan Faludi land. I was I was in Susan Faludi land, honestly. And so, and you know, the year I went to college was the year that Katie Royfe's book, The Morning After, which sort of like, you know, attacked the on-campus anti-date rape movement. Um, it was a very profound anti-feminist moment in which I came of age and was a 
teenager, and it never occurred to me then. I mean, I did go to the to marches in Washington in 1992 when I was a junior in high school around reproductive rights, but somehow that was cut off from any sense of a larger women's movement. There just wasn't a sense of any kind of feminist cohesion. Um, and feminism has never been a cohesive movement, but on the other hand, there just wasn't a, a women's movement, and it never... I actually couldn't have imagined that it would come back in the way that it has. I Isn't think, it wonderful? Over the past 10 years. It is wonderful. I mean, I'm just waiting now for the next wave of backlash. I have to say, <laughs> it is wonderful. Um, wah, wah. Wah, wah. Yeah, I know. Well, it's true. It's coming. Prepare. Everybody gird. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh it was really around 2003 when I took a job writing for Salon, which was an internet publication, um, that I sort of just took on a flyer. As I, I started to write a little bit from a feminist perspective on women's issues. And so there was this sort of um, blossoming of a new generation of feminism. But that didn't happen until I was really in my mid to late 20s. Um, I believe I wrote some pieces about you. I believe you did. <laughs> we should oh. go back and review those pieces and I can see if I'm actually happy to have you here. <laughs> I think you would be, I think. Um, and But then, you know, uh, suddenly women in presidential politics became a very real reality. And so I found myself in the, in the, during the 2008 election writing about Hillary Clinton. Which was the mother load, so, yeah, to, speak, so to speak, when it came to great material. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, how is it different, the coverage of Hillary Clinton from 2008 to this campaign? Because I've been thinking a lot about that, Rebecca, because I was anchoring the CBS yeah. Evening News. I remember being hyper-vigilant and, and hyper-aware of sexism creeping in to the copy, creeping into the pieces. And I was sort of like the the safety patrol for feminists at CBS, mm -hmm. at least during my tenure. And I remember feeling outraged when, I, I don't know if you remember that one video clip where they strung together all of the really obnoxious comments about Hillary Clinton, about her blouse or about her pants or about her weight or about her laugh or about this, that, and the other thing. And I got so incensed. And I remember actually saying to her, why does Sarah Palin have an action figure and you have a nutcracker? <laughs> I remember that She question. laughed a great so loud. Yeah. But do you think it's changed now with the coverage yes. of this campaign? I don't think it's been entirely ameliorated. I think it's – I think it – is different. You know, one of the clips that's very famous from 2008 is somebody on Fox News saying, she's like your ex-wife standing outside a probate court. Um, somebody, somebody saying, who take, wanted... take out the garbage, you know, the hectoring wife. It's like we've sharpened, there's a lot less commentary about her clothes. In many ways, I think the media has sharpened its vocabulary around sexism. I think 2008 was a tremendous learning experience for a lot of people in the media where they were like, oh, right, those are code words for bitch. The place you still see it and people just can't help themselves. And I understand why, and we can talk about it, is her voice. We do hear Hillary Clinton screaming into a microphone. A, she's not a completely natural orator. B, we are simply not used to hearing this higher register. That's what I just read. I just read a piece about this saying that she needs to speak less from her lungs and more have more air in her stomach. And I know about this because I had to learn it right. as well as a broadcaster. But after an election where we have had Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, who are like right. the, Screaming. The, the kings of yelling, that we all are sitting around wondering how we can make Hillary sound better at a microphone. I agree. You know, it's just, I agree. So there, it's both based in a kind of, in a reality, which is that we, that tone 
doesn't comfort us, right? right? And, and we need to address that at the same time that it's like, well, men can scream at us or comfort or, t- or speak softly and warmly like Barack Obama or slowly, or they can scream, and we can still find them reassuring. It was interesting. I think that there's been a reclamation project around her laugh. I noticed, was it Barack Obama who in Philadelphia last week said, was I can't remember what the context was. Maybe it was in his speech. And he was talking about her laugh, her big laugh. and She's got this wonderful infectious laugh uh, that uh, it carries quite far. And sometimes it'll be surprising because you'll be in the middle of something and she'll go, ha! <laughs> and there's a joy and a, and a mirth that I think sometimes the public doesn't always see. Because that's one of the features of Hillary Clinton that actually people talk about all the time is how readily and how loudly she laughs. And that's what's been cast as the cackle, the rah, rah, you know, you hear right. all of it. But in fact, I think there's been a decided project amongst her friends and colleagues <laughs> to say, wait, we got to recast this laugh. As we're rebranding the, we're the laugh. We're rebranding the laugh as one of the, like, warm and appealing and, you know, one of the one of the appealing things about her instead of something that, that we're going to only hear about is off-putting. So, but yeah, all of this, I mean, the the big issue here is, and this is part of what's radical, and it was radical with the presidency of Barack Obama and will continue to be, it is trading in all our models for what presidents look like, for what political leadership looks like. And that really does mean a national adjustment of our norms, as you say. What went through your mind, Rebecca, when she came out in Philadelphia and there was this moment where it was everyone had to acknowledge this was a new chapter in American history. Mm-hmm. And just two days before that, she talked about the significance of her candidacy when she was on that big jumbo screen. I'm happy for boys and men because when any barrier falls in America, it clears the way for everyone. In 2008, it seems that she really wanted to deny her gender hmm. in well, many ways. Coached too. Coached, she was directly right, by the, advised uh, by, by Mark Dick Morris. Oh, was Mark it Mark Penn, Penn or yeah. Dick Morris? What Mark Penn? Yeah, by a lot of people. I mean, and that wasn't a crazy piece of advice, given that we again have no model for how to run a woman successfully for the presidency. And um, but it turned out to be very bad advice for 2008. Of course, we'll never forget that moment in New Hampshire. Mm. when she showed some emotion in that diner, talking about how challenging it it was for her to run for president or to be criticized or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was completely against type and against what she was being advised to do. And that was the moment where she seemed to catapult higher up, you know, at a higher standing, right? Yes. Um Part of what was happening in the, that period in New Hampshire was it was the most sexist media coverage that she had gotten. She'd lost Iowa. And it's like all of these guys, I'm using guys loosely, but it was mostly guys, <laughs> in television media who like had to be respectful of her for all this time. Suddenly she was losing and there was like a dancing on her grave. I mean, if you go back and listen to the way that, for example, Chris Matthews, who I like and respect very much, and I, I you know, I detail this in, in the book that I wrote about it. A lot of people were just thrilled that Hillary was not only going to lose, she was going to lose early and she was going to be humiliated. And there was all of this really premature grave dancing in those days between Iowa and New Hampshire. And the moment that she cried, 
I mean, at the time, I was somebody who was not terrifically sympathetic to Hillary Clinton. And I had become so enraged listening to the media get excited about her impending doom. And it had, it, it's like it had all come into focus for me. It obviously made her more vulnerable. And I think powerful women become more palatable and more appealing when they show us their vulnerabilities. But there's something else about women and crying, which is crying for many of us is the way that we express that we're incredibly pissed off. I mean, I think the, the relationship between showing emotion and anger. And by the way, I should also clarify, she didn't cry. There's not a single no. tear that fell from her eyes. She got misty-eyed. She got stuffy, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but there was something about that. I'm not sure that it was just that we all like our sisters weepy, right? <laughs> Which was sort of the read of the media. I think it was there were a lot of women in New Hampshire, and they're the voters who surprisingly put her over the top in New Hampshire, and she staged a huge surprise win in New Hampshire. I remember. Like the next day. And I actually think it was a lot of angry women. I, I sort of see it that moment as being more about anger. anger than about like a sort of soggy vulnerability. But it is true that the moments in 2008 when she successfully talked about her place in history and that she was able to do so in a way that was compelling and inspiring to people were the moments of loss. So the greatest speech she gave in 2008 was the concession speech. About the glass ceiling. About the glass ceiling. And about, for me, I mean, the parts of it that, about shooting 50 women into space, which is an incredible piece of speech writing. The 50th woman to leave this earth is orbiting overhead. If we can blast 50 women into space, we will someday launch a woman into the White House. And although we weren't able to shatter that highest, hardest glass ceiling this time, thanks to you, it's got about 18 million cracks in it. is shining through like never before, filling us all with the hope and the sure knowledge that the path will be a little easier next time. Um, that was a beautiful speech, and she really marked her place in history. And But that was also a moment where she was no longer a threat. We do not like women who talk about how great they are. But of course, that is the job of a politician running for office. And one of the things that she was freed to do in 2008 when she lost was sort of talk about how great she was, or at least how historical she was, in a way that wasn't threatening anymore because she wasn't up for the job. But don't we dislike when men talk about how great they are, too? I mean, I, no. I get turned off by conceited people in general. Right. Well, and men in a political context, they're supposed to be running for office. They're, Of course they're out there telling us that they're better than their opponent. But that's still disconcerting and hard for us to hear, or at least hard for us to feel warmly about when it's a woman. And I think that's especially true, by the way. I think it's going to get easier for her now that she's in the general. That was especially true when the people she's addressing are people who are divided in their loyalties between her and Bernie Sanders in this past race and between her and Barack Obama in 2008, another person who has good politics. I mean, she, you're, you're dividing your natural base because everybody sort of has the same ideas about policy and ideology. And you have these two candidates who probably many of us felt warmly about in one way or another. And it's even harder to hear the woman saying, I am essentially saying, I'm the better candidate for this job than that guy. That is still very discomforting for us. I would say this time around, she embraced her gender yes. much more enthusiastically. Why? 
Well, I think she realized it had been a mistake in 2008. I mean, there was there are lessons that I think she drew from Barack Obama's campaign correctly. Um, he also was very careful and had to be in terms of how he talked about race. But what he was very successful at was making this kind of emotional compact with voters. Like, we are making history together. We're doing this important thing. We can all feel good about ourselves because we are working towards something that is – very overdue and a grave injustice in the United States, and we're working toward a small correction of it that will actually be a big correction of it. Um, it it doesn't work. It's it's not a parallel set of strategies around around women's progress in the United States. But I think that she took some lesson, which is that people want to feel celebratory and good about making history, and this is making history. This country has a hard time unambivalently celebrating milestones in women's rights. It, it's very complicated and it's and it's very fraught and Hillary's walking right into that. It's also fraught because of who she is yes. and the baggage she brings to the conversation. Absolutely. She brings but on the other hand taking apart who Hillary is and who she's become and how she's become that way, you can't do that with also without looking at her as somebody who is formed um by being this rather anomalous woman in an extremely male world. I mean, there's, which is not to make excuses. That's not the same thing as making excuses for the various negative things about Hillary Clinton, and and there are many of them. Um, But it is to say that it's not an accident that this is the candidate we got, right? We didn't, it's not a passive, you know, sort of quirk of nature that this is the person who bubbled up to be the first woman president, right? To some degree, Hillary Clinton was also made by the very history that she is now campaigning to change, if that makes any sense. It does. It does and it doesn't because I think you have to also consider the Clinton legacy mm-hmm. and the Clinton baggage in general. It's not just Hillary Clinton. It's – I understand what you're saying on one level, but I also wonder if there would be – be the possibility of a woman without quite this much baggage with the kind of choices and judgments that had been made in the past to rise to the surface. Sure, there will be a woman who comes after her who has none of this baggage, right? Or who has a different set of baggage. But I mean, if you yes, look true. At, but if you look at the history of women in American politics, the first women, the first mayors, the first representatives, the first governors, um, almost all of them arrived there in one way or another via the widow's mandate or taking over their father's seat. I mean, it, historically speaking, it was practically inevitable that the first female president was probably going to have a strong relationship to a male president. In, in our history, proximity to power has been the closest that most women have gotten to power, and therefore the first women to actually break through have been the, the ones who started with proximal power. A, ne- a necessary rung on the ladder, if you will. I mean, I think even if she doesn't get elected, um, the mark of her political legacy is so big, both between 2008 and this year, that it is already readjusted. She's helped already to readjust our eyes and ears to the idea of what somebody could look like on a presidential stage who's not a white guy. I have to ask you about the white pantsuit because uh, I didn't realize until recently how symbolic that was mm-hmm. that Geraldine Ferraro were white, for example, and there have been other examples. The, the color, suffragettes. It was it was the color of the suffragists. The, the suffragists wore white with gold and purple um, sashes. 
So that was probably no mistake, was probably it, that she not. wore a white pantsuit, which I thought looked not. really nice, by the way. Is that wrong for me to say? No, I'm all, by the way, <laughs> I should say, we, we talked earlier about sort of being critical about clothes. I'm in, on the bandwagon for discussing clothes because that's part of the history. Again, we've never had a president who wore pantsuits, who, you know, had to worry about cleavage. In, in 2008, there was an article in the Washington Post about Hillary's cleavage. Like, right, we, which we've never had really, that before. really bugged me, by the way. I'm glad you brought that up because that really annoyed me, the tone and angle of that story. I don't mind sort of discussing it because it's something that people notice and think about and contemplate, but I didn't like I just don't – I didn't like the way the person wrote that piece. That's very fair. The thing I would defend is the noting, for example, that she wore white when she accepted the nomination. And we can't be so uptight that we can't talk about it. I just wish men had more interesting garments to sport because they're <laughs> know, so boring. There's unjust. nothing to really talk about. I know. And that's why, you know, when I did the CBS Evening News, a lot of people – commented on my clothes and my hair and my right. makeup and the way I held my hands. And it was, it you know, there's a fine line of noticing, appreciating, even discussing, and having that be the prevalent thing that is incoming for people. Right. And the amount of energy that you, I mean, I imagine that you spent having even to listen to that stuff compared to your male predecessors, to your male colleagues. I'm sure that was also true on the Today Show. Oh. I'm, I mean, I'm pretty sure do you, you think probably anybody heard has more. Dis- do you think anybody discusses what Scott Pelley is wearing right. during an interview ever, ever? Right. But anyway, enough about me. Let's talk about Hillary and uh, how she was able to, just to put a button on this clothing conversation, (laughs) neutralize the whole discussion about what she was wearing. I read, I mean, it's so interesting to me, Rebecca. I just read a whole piece on how pantsuit, why are women wearing pantsuits and men wearing suits? Pantsuits, the term started to be used in the (laughs) 1860s when little boys wore shorts with their jackets. And there is something slightly uh, demeaning about pantsuits. Infantilizing, right? Yeah. Which is what we, that's one of the ways we deal with women is we treat them like they're children. If we're going to indulge the clothes thing for one more second, I have to say that my very favorite sartorial period for Hillary was when she was Secretary of State. She started wearing these big pattern dresses. I thought about it. Like, I mean, kind of moo-moos. I mean, and it's like, I mean, the thing about that period was that the way she was dressing and handling herself, she was so busy and it seemed like she was so powerful and like she just didn't give a shit. It was, for me, it was her at her most sort of beautiful if I'm going to evaluate the sartorial choices. But now I think she's so busy, it's just as easy to have a set of pantsuits. And she knew that if she, if she wore a big pattern dress right now on the presidential trail, oh we would God. never hear the end of it. It would be so Armageddon. It would be Armageddon. So, you know. Hillary has very bad numbers when it comes to trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. No surprise. And likability. But so does Donald Trump on the likability front. Mm-hmm. How much of the I don't trust her is a proxy for good old-fashioned sexism, in your view? Well, a, a lot of it. Um, I'm actually in the midst of writing a piece um, that delves into the history of distrust and women and the way that we can talk about women as fundamentally unreliable, as deceptive, um, as a way of diminishing their potential power. Sort of the history of that? And <clears throat> a little kind of bit. How- I mean, I, I interviewed somebody. So I, I, I'm, I'm writing this piece, and I interviewed a professor who said to me, for, and it was such a great point. She said, 
whenever we talk about our dislike for women, so often it comes down to the fact that you just can't trust them in a way that goes back to the Bible. I mean, this sense that women are fundamentally deceptive and duplicitous is an extremely old theme. With Hillary Clinton, you have somebody, if you're just going to compare Clinton and Trump on this uh, <laughs> on this ground, right? There are all these like politifact rates, you know, people's truthfulness. And if you look at the charts of sort of 20 of the most powerful politicians in the country right now, Hillary comes in second right below Barack Obama and just above Bernie Sanders and Jeb Bush, interestingly, as a sort of most truthful politician. Jill Abramson, who is another female first, and she was the former head editor of the New York Times, wrote a big piece in The Guardian about as somebody who had been in charge of all these inf investigations into Hillary Clinton's purported malfeasance, what she found after having reported on it and edited pieces about it, these massive investigations was that she was a fundamentally honest person. Um, and yet, these allegations that she's that she's duplicitous stick to her. We just can't trust her. There's something about her we can't trust. It is irrational based on what we actually know. And we can take one story like the emails. Um, you know, the fact that she did her own, that she set up her own server and went around. And that can be our evidence. Um, and fair enough, except that Colin Powell also, you know, operated in similar ways with regard to the emails. There, I mean... I mean, but in we, fairness, there wasn't the FBI investigation. She didn't say, I never sent classified right. information, right. where there was classified information, according to Comey, on seven of those email chains. Right. I mean, it's it's not quite right. no, no, as no. There's cut now, and we dried have, as that. It's not as cut and dried as that. And that's why, it, in many ways, I don't know that Hillary Clinton's um, dishonesty, which is, and there are moments of it, I don't know that that sets her apart from politicians. Politicians are known to be dishonest. And Hillary Clinton is a politician who is sometimes dishonest. The way in which it has blown up to be the most salient feature of Hillary Clinton, I think, flies in the face of rationality. Then you look at somebody like Donald Trump. Donald Trump delights in lying to us every day. He takes pleasure in it. He contradicts the thing he said the day before. He tells you something that is easily disprovable with like four seconds on Google. He, it's like he practically enjoys getting away with this stuff. And when we talk, when, when, when voters talk positively about what they like about Donald Trump, what is it? He's a straight talker. Right. He tells it like it is. He Even, says the things we're thinking and can't say. Right. He is, there's something transparent. And even though he's, he's disliked, you're right. He also has very bad favorability numbers. The, the reason that people, one of the reasons people say they like him is because there's something just straightforward about him. So, yeah, I think it's probably gendered in ways that are very deep and very complicated. Conversely, what we're seeing happen in the Trump campaign is fascinating in terms of its, I would say, cluelessness about women's issues as evidenced by the comments he has made recently about sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. I always say I got into television when harass was two words instead of one. <laughs> That's a very good line. Thank you. It always gets a laugh. I also say that gravitas is Latin for testicles. Yes. <laughs> so obviously I come to this from a very unique and, and probably specific point of view. But I thought watching this conversation about sexual harassment in the workplace has been fascinating because I feel that I have been in a time machine and taken back to a Mad Men episode mm -hmm. in terms of the understanding of sexual harassment by Donald Trump when he says, if Ivanka 
was treated like that. I think she wouldn't put up with it or she would go get another job or she, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And even her brother saying similar things. She's too tough and strong. That would never happen to her. Right. Right. So um, what do you think of those comments? My perspective on them is that they're probably not as clueless as we think. I, you know, really, at the, at the beginning, you think they're playing well, no, to an audience? Th- yeah. Well, I think their cluelessness is part of their appeal to the audience. I think that Donald Trump takes a, a pride in and understands that part of his popularity is based on the fact that his worldview, when it comes to gender and race, is rooted in a madman era. That is, I thought at the beginning of his campaign that there would be corrections of this stuff. And the more I see it continue and, you know, these kind of comments grow worse, the more I suspect that this is, in fact, what he's running on. He's not going to correct it because it's part of what makes his base love him. There was a video published on the New York Times website that that shows unedited um, comments from Trump supporters. And it is clear that part, and they are racist epithets sexist epithets. And what becomes clear watching at least the enthusiasm at those rallies, which are, of course, part of what's powering his popularity, that there's excitement that there is a guy who would still be clueless about sexual harassment and take a perverse kind of pride in it, who doesn't care about sexual harassment, who does view women and black people um, as subsidiary populations in some way over whom he exerts a kind of authority. That is part. And so I have, yes, it may be clueless, but the expression of his cluelessness, I don't think is an error on his part. I think it is part of what he is running on. Sometimes I wonder about the women's vote, because I think about the wives of many of these disenfranchised, alienated, working class voters Mm -hmm. who are perhaps more traditional Mm -hmm. and uh, live in areas that are less urban are we discounting the possibility that in some cases women adapt the political positions of their husbands? No, that's real. Married women vote Republican. So White women vote Republican. So is it too big a stretch to say that women are going to come out for Hillary and yes. she's going to do super well? It's too big a stretch. The populations of women who come out for – who are likely, based on past polling data and past elections, to come out for Hillary are young women, women of color. All the single ladies. Unmarried women, who I've just written a book about. Right. (laughs) Unmarried women are perhaps one of the more powerful voting blocks in the country. And one of the biggest, right? In in 2012, they were 23% of the electorate. Um, They, by many measures, won Barack Obama re-election. And they are predicted in 2016, it's predicted that of women voters, more will be unmarried than married in 2016. And they vote very left. They need a new compact with their government. They need a new set of social policies. They need things like paid leave, higher minimum wage, subsidized child care, equal pay protections, all kinds of things that Democrats are promising. Um, single women are likely to vote for Hillary Clinton, especially over Donald Trump, who's like a sexist ogre, um, by a huge margin, probably much larger than what we saw in 2012, if I were to guess. Um, but married women still tend to vote Republican by a smaller margin. Having said that, has Donald Trump changed that? It, he may. There are a lot of people who – the female distaste for Donald Trump seems really high. <laughs> um, and it's hard to know until we actually see how – until we get more polling and until we see how people actually act when they go into a voting booth. Um, because but, I think there are some hardcore female Donald Trump supporters. Of you course, see them at you the see rallies. them at the rallies. 
You know, they they are angry about some of the same things his male supporters are angry yes. about. And I think that they're being underestimated. Yeah, I mean, I... I it, I think that they are being underestimated. I think they're going to be very vocal, very loud. And yes, I do think, I certainly think that there's going to be a big percentage of women who vote for Donald Trump. I don't think it probably is going to be as big um, as it might have been were it Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush that Hillary Clinton was running against. Let's talk about your time with Hillary Clinton on the trail and bring it full circle. You spent a lot of time with the Clinton campaign. You wrote a piece for New York Magazine all about her. Tell us something about Hillary Clinton that we don't know. Well, <laughs> you know, the, the thing that I will say having spent time with her is something that you've probably, you may not feel it, and but you may have also heard it from other people who have spent time with her. She's very funny and she's immensely warm and she's quite relaxed. And I think that those things are... I just heard people putting on their brakes all over America and going, what? Yes. <laughs> I was really struck by, because for years, as somebody who'd written about Hillary and, writ and read everything that's ever been written about her, um, I knew that there was this split between how people who know her say she is, oh, she's funny, she has a great sense of humor, she laughs all the time, she loves her friends, versus how, her public perception, which is like cold, driving, ambitious. Calculating. You know, can't communicate with anybody. I knew that there was this uh, dichotomy. And then when I, you know, sort of got in and got to spend time with her, sure enough, I was like, wow, it really is true. But I think the thing that surprised me, I, so I was like, right, she is funny and she does laugh and she has a great sense of humor and clearly has a terrifically warm relationship with the people who are, who are in, her, in her circle. The thing that I didn't know was how calm she'd seem. The other thing is that she was so good at the basics of campaigning. We hear all the time about Hillary Clinton's not a natural candidate, and it's true, she's not a natural orator. But the sort of handshaking, remembering everybody's name, remembering a detail, oh, I remember when we saw each other however many days ago, how's your kid doing, how's that kind of glad-handing retail politics, she was just absolutely smooth and capable, and it was like watching an Olympic athlete. That was also surprising to me. There was nothing awkward or chilly about her one-on-one -on -one or with the people that she was talking to on the trail. Are they going to unleash this Hillary Clinton? Will she allow herself to be unleashed like Aladdin comes out of that little lamp and suddenly you're going to say, oh my gosh, she's so much different than I thought? I think that they would like to unleash her, but I don't know if it's possible on a large scale. I mean, this is one of the challenges. All this stuff is in one-on-one -on -one campaigning or in small groups. As soon as you put her on a stage in front of a large crowd, it becomes much more difficult. She's capable of it, but it's a much more difficult project. They won't let her talk to enough reporters, no, they need, I think. she needs to you know, talk to more press. I have and this been is... saying, let me talk to her. Let me do an interview with her. I've known her since 1992. I did her first interview as First Lady. I'm like, just let her be herself. Obviously, I'm going to ask tough questions, duh. Right. But I think she needs to to show that side of her. And I just don't understand why they're so reticent but to I think put, she her in, has... put her in a Put her in a venue where it will come out. I have I have had the same frustrations for many years. I mean, it's been many years that I've been asking to talk to Hillary Clinton in one capacity or another, and it took a really long time. Um, I think she has an antipathy toward the press, and I think though I may understand some of it. She's had you know she's had a rough time of it over I the past twenty five years. I always say I hate the press, and I am one. <laughs> right. But this is an instance in which I think it would be good for everybody if she could figure out a way to get over it, and I don't I don't yet see that happening. And to bring it full circle, how does she – are white men of a certain age just a lost cause at this point? 
Well, there's certainly not a lost cause in terms of the policies that she's putting forth. I mean, one of the interesting things about the platform and the way she's campaigning is that she's working hard for them. And, you know, college-educated white men are actually breaking for her. Right. I'm talking about working class. Working class white men she's having a very hard time with. Um, And there are all kinds of arguments about why that might be. One of the interesting things about her campaign is that while strategically I think there is an argument that she could sort of cut the losses on that because her base, you know, of voters of color, women, that that strategically the best move is to turn out the vote in those areas. She is actually choosing to really work hard for that for the working class white vote. I mean, this is she picked Tim Kaine, and there are there are a lot of arguments for picking a running mate who would be both more progressive and in many ways appeal to other to other populations, to other constituencies. Um, she picked the white guy, the Southern white guy. Um, talking about min- raising the minimum wage, infrastructure jobs, green jobs. Um, these are all economic issues that would have a profound impact on America's white working class. Whether or not she wins their votes, it is true that she's proposing policy that would hopefully be good for them. But Donald Trump is tapping into a feeling. Mm-hmm. And those are two very different things. Yep. What about Bernie Bros? You know, we hear, and young feminists or young women in general, um, Madeleine Albright got into a lot of trouble when she said her famous line, which I've often quoted, there's a special place in hell for women who help don't help other women. And I think young women felt that was a real affront, saying we're not going to vote for Hillary simply because she is female. Do you think that they've come around? And what about male supporters of Bernie Sanders under the age of 30, for example? Well, by this, I haven't seen the, the numbers post-convention, but at this, going into the convention, more former Bernie supporters had said that they were going to vote for Hillary Clinton than Hillary supporters said they were going to vote for Barack Obama going into the 2008 Democratic I know Convention. That, yeah. So I don't have a tremendous worry um, that they're not going to come around. What about women under the age of 30? You know, there there was this generational divide when it came to Hillary Clinton, at least in the primaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you hearing from some of them? My impression is that a lot of young women are actually, and, and, and I've heard from a lot of them who are Bernie supporters, who are going to vote for Hillary Clinton. I think young women are going to move to Hillary Clinton fairly quickly. I think many of them already have. And I think some of them actually were excited. Many of many of the Bernie-supporting young women didn't hate Hillary Clinton. A lot of people, and it's, it's very natural for young people to lean more left than older people. I mean, that's and that's part of what was being presented by the Bernie-Hillary choice is that Bernie, the perception was that Bernie had lefter politics, more radical politics. And I think it's very natural and healthy for young people to prefer radical politics. It's likewise natural and healthy for for older people who've some seen some of the sausage made to have perhaps a more moderate take on on the approach. And so I didn't find that generational divide a sign of like feminism's imminent de- demise or anything. And I do think that an, a, a vastly large percentage of all Bernie voters and especially young women never felt intense antipathy toward Hillary. Some of them did. Some of them did. And some of them may change their minds on that or may reluctantly vote for her or may abstain. But and then we'll see how they feel about her if she becomes the president. You know, we'll see how everybody feels about her if she becomes the president. Um, But I'm not worried that young women as a population are going to stay away from the polls um, in November. I, I actually think that many people who think they don't care, who many people who assume young women don't care, about electing a woman president, I believe they'll be surprised, this is my guess, 
by the number of women who wind up turning out to vote for her and feel pretty excited about it. Rebecca Traster, so fun to talk to you. It was really fun to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Greta Cohn and the Right Reverend John Delore for producing the show. The Right Reverend! <laughs> I wonder how many shows before you stop doing that. <laughs> Thanks to Mark Phillips for our theme music. And thank you for listening. If you want to leave us a message, please do so at... Let me do this part. 929-224-4637. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps other listeners to find the show. And we'll... Talk to you next time. Bye. Yeah, we adjusted Katie's medicine this morning. It's really interesting. Oh, the single ladies. Oh, the single ladies. <laughs> You're doing it like as Liza Minnelli. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> From where is that <laughs> sex in the city to? Starts the news. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay, I'll stop. I'm going to be reviewing my contract right after this. <laughs> I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee visit rightrug.com that's r-i-t-e-r-u-g.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you 24-month financing is available with approved credit for 90 years we've been right here right now right rug flooring if a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.